The New Testament reading for today will be 1 Corinthians 11:23 through 34. The Old Testament reading will be Exodus 12:1 through 28. That will be the sermon text. So 1 Corinthians 11 and Exodus 12. As the kids are getting situated, I'd like to invite everyone to attend our PM worship service. Um, There we will um, preach on this doctrinal theme that's been introduced to you right now. Uh, There we will sing and there we will pray. begins at 12.15. I'd love if you can come. 1 Corinthians 11.23, hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, said, For I received from the Lord what I have also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that He was betrayed took bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also He took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together it will be not for judgment. About other things I will give directions when I come. Let us go now to Exodus 12 and read verses 1 through 28. This is our sermon text for today. Exodus 12, beginning in verse 1. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, and a lamb for, and a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb... Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you 
on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done in all those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as He has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians, but despaired our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. And the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron. So they did. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. The text that is before us today consists of two parts. In verses 1-20, through 20, we find a record of the instructions that God gave to Moses and Aaron regarding Israel's perpetual observance of the Passover memorial under the old Mosaic Covenant. And although verses 21-28 through 28 are certainly related to this, they differ in that they are a record of the instructions that Moses gave to the elders of Israel regarding the observance of the first Passover with some mention made of its future observance. You can see the division of the text by reading verse 1, "...the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be to you the beginning of months, etc." And comparing it to verse 21, the Lord, uh, excuse me, the, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb, etc. So we see here uh, that Moses and Aaron were priests and that Moses was also a prophet. That Moses and Aaron were priests is clear because God gave them instructions regarding the religious observance of the Passover under the old Mosaic covenant. They and the priests that would descend from them were to see to it that the worship of God was maintained throughout uh, their generations. 
But it was Moses the prophet who then delivered the word of God to the people um, of God uh, through their elders. By the way, and this is a bit of a side note, but I think it is significant. Did you notice that the Hebrew people are back on board in this passage? The Hebrew people are back on board. We haven't heard anything about them since chapter 6. Remember that Pharaoh had responded to Moses' original request to release the Hebrews by withholding the straw necessary for making bricks. And thus he greatly increased the already heavy burden of the Hebrews. And this caused the Hebrew people to turn away from Moses and Aaron. The foreman of the Hebrews spoke to them, saying, The Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Uh, Look what you've done, Moses and Aaron. You've made matters worse for us. And then in 6.9 of Exodus we read, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the people were crushed. Uh, That was the last we heard about the spiritual condition of the Hebrews. They were broken, greatly discouraged, unwilling to listen to Moses, but now they're back. Now they're back. And I think it is safe to say that although they maintained a low profile to avoid even harsher treatment from Pharaoh while Moses and Aaron did their thing, they were certainly watching. They witnessed the judgments that God poured out on Pharaoh, the Egyptians, and the gods of Egypt. And they also saw how the Lord made a distinction between them and the Egyptians to protect them from these plagues. In other words, the Lord had proved Himself faithful through the outpouring of the first nine plagues, and now we see that the Hebrews are back on board. In verse 21, Moses calls for the elders of Israel, and they come and listen. And after Moses gives his instructions, we read of the reaction of the Hebrews in verses 27-28. through The people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, and the Lord As the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. They're they're back on board. They're they're listening to Moses again, to Moses and to Aaron. They're obeying their words. They are worshiping the Lord. So evidently God had gotten their attention. He had proved Himself faithful. And I'm saying that this is quite a turnaround. Uh, This is quite a turnaround. And I wonder if you can relate to this. Uh, Perhaps you've gone through a season of pronounced difficulty which left you feeling greatly discouraged and even doubting. But God has showed Him faithful to you. He has showed Him faithful in His judgments and in His grace, leading to your restoration. It seems to me that the Hebrews went through something like this as a people. They were so beaten down that they began to doubt Moses and the Lord in whose name He came. But now they're back. The people bowed their heads and worshipped. And they went and did as Moses commanded So, with all of that as an introduction, I have three general observations to make concerning the instructions that the Lord gave to Moses and Aaron and through them to the Hebrew people concerning the observance of the Passover. That's what this text is about. These are instructions concerning the observance of the Passover. This pattern has been broken where one plague is described to us after the next. We still have not seen the outpouring of the tenth plague. We're waiting for it. These are instructions given by the Lord uh, to Moses and Aaron and through them to the people of, of Israel regarding the perpetual observance of the Passover. And the first observation that I would like to make, and I think this is very important for us to recognize, these Passover laws that were revealed to Israel in the days of Moses 
were positive laws. These Passover laws that were revealed to Israel in the days of Moses, they were positive laws. Positive laws are laws that are added by the Lord. Paul himself uses this language to refer to the the laws given in the days of Moses. These laws were added. These are positive laws added by the Lord. These positive laws are often given in connection with the establishment of a covenant. Positive laws are not inherently moral. Before this time, no one was obliged to keep the Passover. In fact, no one would have thought to do so, for the Passover had not occurred. This obligation to keep the Passover was imposed upon Israel at the time of the Exodus and not before. Natural laws are binding on everyone, everywhere, and always, for these are moral laws which were written on Adam's heart at creation. They do not change. Murder, for example, uh, was sinful in the beginning. It is sinful to this present day. It will always be sinful. It is a, it is a moral law, and a, a natural law. But positive laws are morally neutral, and they are imposed by God, as I have said, often in connection with the making of a covenant between God and man. Positive laws are often filled with symbolism. Adam had the moral law written on his heart at the time of creation, but the law concerning abstinence from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was added later. It was a positive law added later. The law to abstain from that tree was a positive law added by God in connection with the making of the covenant of works. The forbidden tree was made by God to signify rebellion against God, whereas the tree of life was made to signify Adam's perfect, exact, and perpetual obedience. Eating fruit from trees is not inherently sinful, but for Adam it was a sin to eat of the forbidden tree after the Lord commanded him not to eat of it. The law concerning the forbidden tree was a positive law, for it was added to the moral law and imposed upon Adam. Abraham was also given a positive law, the law of circumcision. This law was added to signify the covenant that God had made with Adam, with Abraham. By this sign, the Hebrew people were marked off from the other nations. Before this law of circumcision was added, it was not a sin for anyone to remain uncircumcised. After this law was added, it was a sin for a male descendant of Abraham to remain uncircumcised. And that remained true up until Christ came into the world through the Hebrew people to accomplish the work of redemption. Ever since then, ever since Christ lived, died, rose again, and ascended... Circumcision is to be regarded as nothing, for circumcision or uncircumcision is a morally neutral thing. It was only a moral issue for a particular time and for a particular people while they lived under a particular covenantal arrangement according to the command of God. Do you get it? This is how positive laws function. They're added to the moral law. They're imposed by God upon a particular people for a particular time in connection with a particular covenant. Notice that positive laws were also added by Christ upon the inauguration of the New Covenant. Those who have faith in Christ are to be baptized, and they are also to partake of the Lord's Supper. Before Christ said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And before He said, Do this in remembrance of Me, in regards to the observation of the Lord's Supper, God's people were not obligated to keep these commands. But now that Christ has added these positive laws, those who have faith in Christ are bound to obey them, 
For they do signify our union with Christ under the new covenant and our separation from the world. This will be so until the Lord returns. But in the new heavens and new earth, we will not observe baptism in the Lord's Supper, for then the covenant of grace will be brought to a consummation. Those in Christ will pass from grace to glory. We will no longer observe baptism in the Lord's Supper there. Uh, these positive laws have been imposed upon the people of God as, as, as His people, as they live under the new covenant for a time, for, for a particular purpose. They're positive laws. They're not moral. And here I am saying that such was the case with the observance of the Passover. Such was the case with the observance of the Passover. These Passover laws that we are now considering were positive laws added by God and imposed upon the people of Israel in the days of Moses. No one was obliged to keep the Passover before this time. Only the Hebrews were obliged to keep the Passover after this. And these Passover laws would remain binding upon them until their purpose was fulfilled. These Passover laws were for Israel under the old Mosaic covenant. They passed away with the arrival of the Christ, the accomplishment of our redemption through His shed blood and the inauguration of a new and better covenant. Neither ethnic Jews nor ethnic Gentiles today are obliged to observe the Passover religiously for the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world has come. Uh, to observe the old covenant Passover today as if it is a religious obligation is to in fact deny that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. Now, if what I've just said regarding the Passover feast binding the Hebrews only and only under the Old Mosaic Covenant is true, then what are we to make of verse 14 of our text, which says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Verse 17, And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought you your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations a statute forever. And verse 24, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. I am placing emphasis there upon the word forever. I think it can be easily misunderstood. If the Hebrew word translated as forever means from this day forward and for all eternity, then what I have just said regarding the Passover laws no longer binding us must be wrong. Are you following with me? In fact, if this is so, if forever means from this day forward and for eternity, then we must confess that the New Testament Scriptures are wrong. For they do clearly teach that all of these feast days that were imposed upon Israel under the old Mosaic Covenant have, in fact, passed away. But a word study on this Hebrew word, translated as forever, will show that it is used in relation to all kinds of Old Covenant ceremonial laws. To give just one example, Leviticus 23.21 speaks of the observance of the Day of Atonement when it says, "...you shall hold a holy convocation, you shall not do any ordinary work, it is a statute forever." in all your dwelling places throughout your generations. If, if forever means for all eternity, then we are still obliged to observe the Passover, the Day of Atonement, and many other ceremonial laws given to Israel in the days of Moses. But again, I'm saying to you that this contradicts the clear teaching of the New Testament, which teaches that these ceremonial laws that were given to Israel under the old Mosaic Covenant have passed away. Why have they passed away? Because they have served their purpose because they have been fulfilled by Christ. And in fact, the Hebrew word 
does not necessarily mean forever, as in for all eternity, but rather forever, as in for a very long time. That is to say, perpetually, for as long as this covenantal arrangement lasts. That is the meaning. This positive law, along with the other positive laws given to Israel under the old Mosaic covenant, they governed Israel's worship for a time. They governed Israel's worship under the old Mosaic covenant. They governed Israel's worship until the Christ who was promised to them was born into this world to accomplish our eternal redemption. These people who lived under the old Mosaic covenant were to keep these statutes regarding worship, regarding holy days forever and perpetually as this covenantal arrangement lasted. This is how positive laws work, brothers and sisters. This is how positive laws work. All of them, they're not inherently moral. They're filled with symbolism. They're given in connection with the making of a covenant. They remain in place until their symbolic function is fulfilled. And the covenant to which they belong is either broken or fulfilled. I want you to think with me just for a moment about the trees in the garden. Adam was given a command by God to eat of the one and to abstain from the other. But those laws do not pertain to us, do they? Why? Adam broke the covenant of works. It's finished. I want you to think of circumcision. Circumcision was commanded. God said to Abraham, all of your male descendants are to be circumcised. Circumcision was an issue for all of the male descendants of Abraham, but not for us. Why? Because the promises made to Abraham have all been fulfilled. The old covenant has passed away. The new has come, having been inaugurated by Christ, Abraham's true son. And as I have said, We will not observe the Lord's Supper in the new heavens and earth, for then we will not be under the covenant of grace, but we will be translated to glory, the consummated covenant of grace. There we will eat the marriage supper of the Lamb, something greater of which the Lord's Supper is but a type. The observance of the Lord's Supper will thus pass away. This is how positive laws, all of them, this is how they function. They're given to a particular people for a particular time to to govern a particular covenant. And that's what's going on here. The Passover laws that are here revealed to the people of Israel through Moses, they are positive laws. And brothers and sisters, I have rushed through all of this because I think it is very important for us to understand uh, now that we have come to Exodus chapter 12. We've studied Genesis, Genesis together. Here we are now in Exodus chapter 12. And in Exodus chapter 12, we are beginning to consider that period of redemptive history where the Lord makes the Hebrew people into a nation, that is to say the nation of Israel. Something brand new is about to happen. I want you to think of it. Prior to this, prior to the Passover and the Exodus that follows, the Hebrew people were set apart as a people. We may trace this back to Abraham in Genesis 12, even to Noah's son Shem in Genesis 11. They've been set apart as a, as a people. The descendants of Abraham are, are set apart. The Lord has promised to do something special uh, through, through them uh, to, to give them the promised land, to bring the Messiah into the world through them so that the nations will be blessed by Him. All of that has happened, but Israel is not yet a nation. Here in Exodus chapter 12, we see that the Hebrew people begin to emerge as a nation, as they are led out of Egypt to journey towards the promised land. And soon, we will see that the Lord imposed a whole bunch of laws upon them to govern them as a nation. 
That's what we're going to see. In the rest of the book of Exodus, and in particular in the book of Leviticus, we see all kinds of laws revealed by God through Moses and imposed upon the Hebrew people. Uh, These laws, some of them are civil laws pertaining to the government of that nation. Some of them are ceremonial laws, laws pertaining to the worship of God under the old Mosaic covenant. And I am saying that the laws regarding the keeping of the Passover are the first of many positive ceremonial laws. We must learn how to interpret these laws, brothers and sisters. They were positive laws, laws added by God and imposed upon a particular people for a particular time under a particular covenant and for a particular purpose, namely to preserve these people physically and spiritually until the Christ who was promised to them was brought into the world to accomplish our redemption. If you were just to pick up your Bible and open up to Exodus 12, you're probably already there. And if you were to go to the very end of the Old Testament or to the beginning of the New, if you were to hold in your fingers how the, 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 those, those pages, you'd see it's a lot of pages, isn't it? A lot of pages. From Exodus 12, 13 onward, Passover and, and onward. All of that history, it's, it's, it's a history about the people of Israel living under the old Mosaic economy, you know? Think of it. And those people... Uh, were given many, many laws, laws added, positive laws added to the moral law. And we must understand that these laws were peculiar, unique to them. It's going to be very hard for us to read our Bibles and to make sense of our Bibles if we don't understand this. If you don't, if you don't understand this. Have you ever asked the question when reading through the book of Exodus, the second half, or the book of Leviticus, why don't these apply to us today? What, what applies to us today and what doesn't, you know? Why have some things changed and other things have not? It's all here. It's what I'm telling you right now. It's all rooted in, in this idea. We, we must understand this idea, this concept of, of positive laws, laws added to the moral law and imposed upon the Hebrew people. We need to keep all of this in mind as we continue in our study of Exodus and Lord willing come to study Leviticus someday. These civil and ceremonial laws imposed upon Israel are all to be regarded this way. We may learn a great deal from the positive laws. We may learn something about God's moral law by considering the civil laws imposed upon Israel. And we may may learn a great deal about Christ and the work that He came to accomplish by considering the ceremonial laws imposed upon Israel. For in these laws He was prefigured. We're about to see that in a big way, aren't we? The Passover, you know... Yes, an act of redemption was accomplished by God in this time, and and the Hebrews were to observe the Passover feast perpetually, forever, throughout their generations, in order to remember that act of redemption accomplished by God through Moses to redeem Israel from Egyptian bondage. That's all true. But Christ was prefigured there, too. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our Passover Lamb. So we may learn a great deal about Christ by looking at these these positive laws and, and seeing the way that they foreshadowed the Christ to come. So we are not to take these civil laws or these ceremonial laws and throw them in the trash. No, we are to cherish them still. But we are to understand that they don't apply to us in the same way because the new covenant has come. Christ has accomplished His work. We're not bound to keep them today. For they were given to Israel for a particular time and for a particular purpose. My second observation is this. The Passover was initiated by God through Moses 
to serve as a memorial to the act of redemption accomplished by the Lord to deliver the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage. This Passover feast, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which corresponds to it, was to be kept perpetually and forever throughout Israel's generations to to function as a memorial to the act of redemption accomplished by the Lord to deliver the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage. The Passover feast is called a memorial in verse 14, where the Lord speaks to Moses saying, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. The Hebrew people from this day forward were to keep the Passover in order to remember what the Lord had done for them. Notice that the Passover was initiated and instituted before the historical event of which it was a memorial occurred. Isn't that interesting? Instructions are given for the keeping of the yearly Passover before the historical event of which it was a memorial even occurred. And I think this should remind us of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Our Lord, on the night that He was betrayed, the night before His crucifixion, said, This is my body which is broken for you, and this is my blood, the blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this memorial, the Lord's Supper, was instituted before the historical event of which it is a memorial occurred. So there is a connection here. Uh, We are to see that there was something prophetic about the words of Christ as He instituted the Lord's Supper. He's commanding His disciples to observe this sacred meal throughout their generations, but He's also predicting what is about to happen. His body is about to be broken. His blood is about to be shed. And the same is true of the inauguration, the institution of the Passover. Here the Hebrews are instructed to observe the Passover before the Passover itself even took place. There's something prophetic, therefore, about this passage that we're considering. But the main point is this. The Passover was from this day forward to be observed as a memorial. The people of Israel were to look back and remember what the Lord had done for them to deliver them from Egyptian bondage. They were to remember the plagues, all of them. And in particular, they were to remember the tenth plague, the death of the firstborns of Egypt. And they were to remember how the Lord spared them through the blood of the Lamb. I want for you to consider these three elements to the observance of the Passover. One, consider that sacred time was to be set apart. Sacred time was to be set apart by the people of God. The Passover itself was to be celebrated on the 14th day of the first month of the year, according to the Hebrew lunar calendar and not ours. That month, the month of Abib, which is later called Nisan, was to be regarded as the first month, and the Hebrews were to celebrate the Passover on the 14th day of that month. In fact, we do not only find instructions for the celebration of the Passover in our text, but also instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This feast follows Passover. It was to be observed for seven days. So then the 14th day through the 21st day were to be set apart as, as holy days. No leaven was to be found in the houses of the Hebrews. They were to eat only unleavened bread for that time. And so I am saying to you that sacred time was to be set apart. And I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that God has always set aside sacred time 
for man to rest and to worship. Adam was to keep the weekly Sabbath. Even when he was in the garden, before sin entered into the world, Adam was to keep the weekly Sabbath. Work was to be done for six days, and the seventh day was to be regarded as holy to him, a day for rest, a day for worship. That has never changed, brothers and sisters. The weekly Sabbath is command four of the Ten Commandments. It was instituted in the beginning. It was given to Adam. It is just as much for us to this present day. Of course, the day of observance has changed now that Christ has accomplished His work. He entered into His rest. We find our rest in Him by faith. And so the day has appropriately changed from the seventh to the first. But the weekly Sabbath remains. The weekly Sabbath remains. Sacred time has is still set apart for us. That is explicitly what Hebrews 4.9 says. It says it directly. A Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. Under this new covenant era, a Sabbath keeping remains. The weekly Sabbath remains and it will remain until the thing of which the Sabbath is a sign arrives. Namely, eternal rest in the new heavens and the new earth. But here I want you to see that in the days of Moses, sacred days were added and imposed upon the Hebrews. Beyond the weekly Sabbath, they were to keep a whole host of of holy days. They're connected in some way to the Sabbath day, the weekly Sabbath. But these, these holy days were added and imposed upon the Hebrew people in the days of Moses. These added days are what Paul refers to in Colossians 2.16 saying, Therefore, Christian, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are shadows of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Some will say, look at Paul says we're not to regard the Sabbath anymore. No, the way that Paul talks here is is obviously in reference to this whole complex of positive laws that were imposed upon Israel in the days of Moses. It's technical language that he's using here. He's saying, let no one pass judgment on you in regard to these laws, the laws given through Moses to Israel in those days. These are nothing for you anymore. But a Sabbath keeping does remain for the people of God, according to Hebrews 4. So that's what Paul is referring to there. These holy days were... Very important for Israel. They gave Israel, as a nation, an opportunity to pause and to remember what the Lord had done for them to redeem them. How He had set them apart as His people. And how He had entrusted them with His precious and very great promises. That was the purpose for the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and all of the other holy days that God imposed upon Israel. These these holy days were given to them so that they might be mindful of their privileged place in the world, so that they might be mindful of the purpose for their existence, so that they might remember the promises entrusted to them throughout their generations. These laws were given to them in order to to, to set them apart and to, 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 to sustain them until the promised Messiah emerged into the world through them. They were very important for Israel. Now we might ask the question, did Israel keep these holy days? Did they actually keep them? 
In fact, the Scripture suggests that they were very unfaithful in this. But nevertheless, I am saying this was their purpose. And dear brothers and sisters, under the New Covenant, these holy days that were given to Israel no longer apply to us. We may learn a great deal from them, yes, we're not to throw these laws into the trash can and not consider them anymore. We may learn a great deal from them, but they no longer apply to us. We're not bound to keep these days, to observe them. They have passed away, for as Paul says, they are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Do you hear it? These these days, these festival days, these new moons and these Sabbaths, these these days of rest that were imposed upon Israel, they were a shadow of things to come. They prefigured Christ, but, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the things prefigured, these things prefigured Christ, but He's, he's come. He has come. Uh, we no longer deal with the shadows. We, we, we have the substance. We, we have the substance. The substance is Christ. He, he casts the shadows backwards into the Old Covenant time. And the people of God did enjoy those shadows. They learned much from them. They benefited them greatly. But, but, but the substance has come. Christ has arrived. And so now we remember Him. We remember Him. But the Lord has not left us, brothers and sisters, without sacred time. The Lord has not left us without sacred time. A Sabbath rest remains for the people of God. The weekly Sabbath the one day in seven, which was given to Adam at the beginning and reiterated in the Ten Commandments, which is a summary of God's moral law, not positive laws, but God's moral law, uh, that weekly Sabbath, it, it remains. It remains. The fact that it was given to Adam and not in the days of Moses is very significant. Adam being the head, the federal head of all humanity, right? Moses being a servant of, of a particular covenant and a leader of a particular people. It's very significant. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The Sabbath day, the Lord's Day Sabbath, it is a day for resting. It is a day for worshiping. It is a day for remembering what the Lord has done for us. It is a day to be reminded that we belong to the Lord and that we are living not for this world, but for the world to come. God has not left us without sacred time. Brothers and sisters, I pray that you will grow and grow and grow in your understanding of the Lord's Day Sabbath and that you will learn to observe it, not in a legal way, not because your pastor says you must, but because it is so good, because it is so precious. Don't neglect assembling together on the Lord's Day Sabbath. Unless you are ill, providentially hindered somehow, don't neglect it. And don't run off from this place to engage in worldly Things. I'm not talking about sinful things here. Of course, you're not to do that. But I'm talking about common things, you know, things, things that are appropriate for the other six days of the week. Stop running off from this place to engage in those things. Set this day, this whole day aside for sacred rest and for worship, corporate worship and private worship. Rest in the Lord and also rest at home. <laughs> Physical rest is important, but we are to rest in Christ. It's a day for remembering. It's a day for remembering. Remembering what God has done for us. Also a day for remembering who we are in Christ and what He has called us to. Grow in this, brothers and sisters. Not so that you might merely keep God's commands out of duty, even though we should, but for the benefit of your own soul and for the glory of God. Sacred time was set apart 
for the Hebrews as a nation, uh, and it has been set aside for us too. Notice secondly that the Passover was a ceremonial meal. The Hebrews were to slaughter a lamb or a goat without blemish. The blood was to be caught in a basin and some was to be spread upon the doorposts of the house. This application of the blood signified that all in the house believed in Yahweh. When the tenth plague was poured out, on the, Lord, uh, out the Lord would pass over all the homes with the blood applied to the doorposts. The Lord Himself would protect that home and all who were in it from the destroyer. And when the Passover was celebrated in the years to come, from this time onward, the people were to reenact this so as to remember the mercy that the Lord had shown to them. And then the people were to roast the lamb quickly and simply over fire. They were to eat all of it. If the lamb was too big for one household to consume, they were to join with other households. The bread they ate was to be unleavened. They were to eat the meal fully clothed and with sandals on their feet as if ready to leave at a moment's notice. Everything about this meal communicated preparedness and, and haste. This was not the kind of meal that families who were well established in their land and in their homes would eat. Rather, it was the kind of meal that those on the go would eat. And that is, of course, the point. The Hebrews were to prepare the meal in this way by faith, knowing that the Lord would deliver them at the break of dawn. And every Passover feast from that day forward was to be celebrated in the same way as a memorial to the great salvation the Lord worked for the Hebrews to deliver them from Egyptian bondage. It was a kind of reenactment of this thing, you know. But the point that I am here making is that it was a sacred meal. It was a sacred meal. Why a meal? Well, meals signify communion, don't they? And these Hebrews were redeemed from Egypt to commune with their God and with one another. This theme runs throughout the Scriptures, brothers and sisters. Do you remember how Abraham ate with the angel of the Lord? Do you remember how... Uh, the people of God ate before God on Mount Sinai as the law was given to them. Uh, many of the sacrifices offered at the tabernacle and later the temple were to be consumed by the priests and by the people. Do not forget the Lord's Supper, of course. And lastly, think of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we will enjoy in the new heavens and earth. That will be the culmination of this biblical theme that runs throughout Scripture. All of these sacred meals and Holy Scripture signify communion with God through Christ, the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed for us. Isn't that interesting? I, I, God could have given the people of Israel a, 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 a different memorial, a different way to remember what God had done for them. But He signified um, and reminded the people of Israel of, of, of this deliverance by commanding them to have a meal together. Every year they were to sit down and they were to eat. They were to eat a particular thing in a, in a particular way to remember God's deliverance. But the meal itself, I think, is significant to to make mention of uh, meals signify communion. And we have a sacred meal set before us as well, don't we? Uh, we remember Christ's sacrifice, but we are also reminded of our communion with God through faith in Christ and our communion with one another through the sacred meal that has been set before us. The third element of this Passover is teaching. teaching. The Hebrews were to observe the Passover not in a ritualistic way, uh, mindlessly, but they were to celebrate it mindfully with hearts filled with faith. They were to teach the significance of the meal to their children. Verse 24, You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you 
as He has promised, you shall keep the service. And when your children say to you, What do you mean by the service? You shall say, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when He struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. So in other words, you're to observe this meal and you're to teach future generations what it means, what it signifies. Surely by this time in the sermon you can see that the Passover memorial and the Lord's Supper share a lot in common, don't they? They are not the same thing, mind you. The Lord's Supper, which you and I are bound to observe today, is its own thing. Like many other elements of New Covenant worship, the Lord's Supper is much more simple than the Passover celebration. And there is a reason for that, by the way. Have you ever wondered why our worship is so simple in comparison to the worship of Old Covenant Israel? Have you ever wondered that? You read about the worship of Old Covenant Israel. It's so complex. Worship at the temple. There's all sorts of washings. Not only do they observe the weekly Sabbath, but many other rest days as well were imposed upon them. Old Covenant worship is, is so very complex in comparison to, to New Covenant worship. Why is that? I think there's a very good answer. It is because Christ was portrayed ahead of time in all of the ceremonies and holy days of Old Covenant worship. He was sketched out ahead of time so that the faithful might perceive Him. But now that He has come, now that we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full, and great, full of grace and truth, John 1.14, these complex sketches of Christ are no longer, no longer needed. Remember that they were a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. We have the substance now, and so a small portion of bread and a small sip of wine are sufficient to remind the people of God of the Christ who has come. His body was broken, His blood shed for the forgiveness of the sins of many. It's simple because the Christ has come. We don't need all of the complexity to sketch Him out for us, to, to make Him vivid to us uh, as we look forward to His coming. He has come. The substance is Christ. And so we just simply need to be reminded of Him and we may look back to Him and know all about the work that He has accomplished for us. The Lord's Supper is not the Passover. It's His own thing. But it is related. Christ instituted the Lord's Supper as He celebrated the last Passover with His disciples. The Lord's Supper is to be observed by the church when she assembles for worship on the Lord's Day. So there we find the principle of sacred time. It is also a sacred meal. Yes, it is a very small meal. It is a symbolic meal. But it is a meal nonetheless. For here our communion with God and with one another through faith in Christ is signified. And it is also a time for teaching. It is a time for teaching. When the children of the Hebrews said, what do these things mean? The Hebrews were to explain it. This is what it means. We're remembering what God did. And this is what this signifies. And this is what that signifies. It was a time for teaching. And so too, with the Lord's Supper, this is a time for teaching. What does this signify? What does it mean? Why do we eat of the bread and drink of the cup? Well, let me tell you, son. Let me tell you, daughter. Christ was crucified for us and He rose again. Ascended to the Father, He will one day return. It is a time for teaching. I wonder, have you noticed that we observe the Lord's Supper after the ministry of the Word? After the ministry of the Word. Why do we do that? Is that just preference? Now, the answer 
is because it is the Word of God that gives the sacrament of the Lord's Supper its meaning or significance. It's not the other way around. It's the Word of God which gives the sacrament of the Lord's Supper its meaning and significance. Without the Word of God, we would not know, or we would soon forget, the significance of these elements. And have you noticed the position of the table in relation to the pulpit in the sanctuary? Have you ever noticed this? Why is the table down there in the midst of you? Why is it below the pulpit? There's a reason for it. It's positioned in this way um, so that we might remember that it is the Word of God which informs the sacrament. That we, we know what the bread and what the cup signify because of what Holy Scripture says. It's not the other way around. And the table is down there in the midst of the congregation for here our collective communion with God is signified in our communion with one another. All who have faith in Christ are invited to come and to partake as we together submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word. All of this is very intentional. In order for us to approach the Lord's Supper correctly, teaching from Scripture is needed. Just as the Word of God informed the Hebrews that the Passover meal was to be a remembrance of the redemption that God accomplished for them, so too it is the Word of God which informs us that the bread and wine signify Christ crucified for sin, raised in victory, ascended in power, who will one day return to judge the wicked and to bring those washed in His blood safely into their eternal inheritance. So these three elements uh, we can observe in the Passover. Sacred time, sacred meal, a time for teaching also. The third point of the sermon today will be very brief, and it is this. The Passover was a memorial, but it was more than a memorial. It would also function as a test of faithfulness for Israel and as a picture of the greater act of deliverance that would be accomplished in the future by the Messiah. So it was a time for remembering, yes, but there was something more going on as well. It was more than a memorial. When I say that the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which accompanied it, was more than a memorial, I mean that it was not just a time for remembering the past. It was also an assessment on the present and a reminder of God's promises for the future. Concerning the assessment on the present, verse 15 of our text says, Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Cut off from Israel, it says. In verse 19 we find the same. Israelites who refused to keep the feast were to be cut off from the people. And I take this to mean that they were to be put out of the nation. And if the people would not do it, God would. For this would indicate that the individual was faithless. So more than a memorial, there's something spiritual going on here with the observance of the, uh, the, the Passover. And concerning the reminder of God's promises for the future that were embedded within this Passover, I've already said that Christ was prefigured in this feast. The New Testament makes this so very clear. And perhaps the clearest evidence for this is the one that I've already cited. Christ, on the night that He was betrayed, took bread and after he had given thanks, he blessed it and broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. The, the bread that he held in his hand was the unleavened bread of the Passover feast. Think about that for a moment. Christ celebrated the Passover, for he lived under the Old Covenant, right? He celebrated the Passover with his disciples and he picked up bread, not just any bread. This wasn't just some any day of the week and uh, this wasn't just a common meal. He picked up the bread of the Passover feast and he said, This is my body broken for you. And when he picked up the cup, it wasn't just any cup, common cup. It was a part of this sacred meal. He picked up the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. 
So not only was he giving instruction for his disciples from that day forward, that's primarily what he was doing, but he was also revealing what had always been signified by the Passover feast. He had always been present in it through the bread and through the cup, but in a shadowy way. Here the Christ was saying, let me tell you what this is really about. This feast was not only about remembering the tenth plague and how the Lord delivered the Hebrews from Egyptian bondage by sparing them from the destroyer. You know, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't just about that, not just a day for remembrance, but there was something, something symbolic too, something forward-looking, something typical. And I am saying to you, Christ, to His disciples, this is my body, this is my blood. I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right, was the message. Uh, this is so clearly stated in the New Testament. Uh, not only is it stated in that institution of the Lord's Supper passage that I've just alluded to, but I want you to listen to the way that Christ speaks to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5-7. He has all sorts of instructions there concerning our approach to the Lord's table. But He says in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 5, For Christ... Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Everything he says about proper observance of the Lord's Supper, he, he, he roots in this truth. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. It's clear as day. The Passover lamb that was slaughtered by the Hebrews, generation after generation, year after year, was a type of the Lamb of God to come. Christ Jesus our Lord, the Messiah. The Passover festival was more than a memorial. It was more than a time for remembering the past. It also did test the faith of the Hebrews in the present. Those who did not honor it were to be cut off. And it prefigured the Messiah too. It anticipated the greater act of redemption that would be accomplished in the future by Him. The blood of the Lamb spread on the doorposts would shield the Hebrews from physical death. But the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, shields those to whom it is applied by faith from the just wrath of God and His eternal punishment. More than this, it grants us life eternal in the new heavens and earth which is our inheritance in Christ. And as you can probably see, the Lord's Supper is more than a memorial too. It is more than a memorial. Do this in remembrance of me. It is a memorial, but it is more than that. Those who are faithless are to be cut off, the Scriptures teach. And if the bread and the cup, uh, and, and, and in the bread and the cup we are reminded not only of what Christ has done in the past, but of what He will do. For he also said, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So remember what I have done, but also remember what I will do. I'll return, and we will celebrate together in the consummated kingdom of God. More than a memorial, there's a spiritual significance too. There's a kind of testing, and there's a kind of purifying that takes place as we observe the Lord's Supper together. Uh, just as it was for the Hebrews when they celebrated the Passover, so it is for us today, but in a greater way. So what shall we say by way of conclusion? One, I want you to understand what happened historically. I want for you to know what God did for the Hebrews to free them from Egyptian bondage. He put the firstborns of Egypt to death, but He shielded His people who had applied the blood of the Lamb to the doorposts of their homes. So understand what happened historically. Two, I want you to understand the Passover feast along with the Feast of Unleavened Bread to know what it meant to the Hebrews it reminded them of the past, it tested them in the present, and it contained promises for the future. And that was so for many, many generations. Three, I want you to see that we celebrate something far greater. When we come before the Lord's table, 
Lord's Day after Lord's Day, we remember a work of redemption that was far greater than the one accomplished in the days of Moses. The deliverance was greater, and the reward is greater. The calling is greater too, brothers and sisters. And so I close with the words of Paul. Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This he wrote, not to Old Covenant Jews, but to New Covenant Christians. The festival that Paul refers to here is not the Passover, but it is the Lord's Supper. And his exhortation to the church is this, that we would celebrate the festival in sincerity and in truth. And so may the Lord help us in these things, brothers and sisters. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the mercy that you have shown to us in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the way that Christ is prefigured in the Old Testament and revealed so very clearly in the New. We thank you for the progress that has been made in the history of redemption, how you have prefigured your redemptive work in the past, but Christ has accomplished our redemption when He came, when He lived and died and rose again. We thank you for the Lord's Supper, which is a reminder of all of these things. Help us, O Lord, to approach the table, to celebrate the festival with hearts that are pure. For we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, and we await the new heavens and new earth. God, I pray that you would strengthen your church, strengthen each member, strengthen each individual, strengthen us corporately, purify us so that we might serve you faithfully in this world. Do a mighty work among us. We thank you for your word, which reveals these truths so clearly. Help us to believe what we have heard and to obey it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.